0: How many of you know <coughs> of certain factors of enlightenment? Inside out, backwards, Fine. Um.
1: Good.
0: How's it going? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so it never uh, hurts to hear them again. I mean, it just it just blows me away that the Buddha himself was ill and said to his... his um, Upatak. Oh,
1: wow.
0: Attended. <laughs> um did you do to talk to me about the same thing who's enlightenment? And he did. And the Buddha gets fun. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. You know, fully enlightened Buddha. Wow. And how interesting and important it is that what we choose to think about or what we choose to say to each other has so much power. And um, it starts with mindfulness because you can't really do anything done without mindfulness. We have to be present and aware. And then it goes directly to um, investigation of dhamma. So, in all these different lists that the Buddha gives us, you'll usually, you'll almost always find some wisdom factor. Among the components of this. And it may not be panya itself, but like in the seven factors of enlightenment, there are two wisdom factors. And the other factors are more sati and samadhi. Or really sati and samadhi, so sati first, uh, investigation of, of dhamma. It's a wisdom factor. And as we dig into the Dhamma, the inspiration comes um, and energy arises. Energy, yudya, or vayama, or some kind of way of talking about energy is in almost every list, thoughts so. And And then when this energy arises, and he lifts the heart, and the next factor is joy. And he talks, he, the word in Pali is piti, and so sometimes, because piti is also part of the jhanas, um, and it can be expressed in a wide variety of ways, but for our practical purposes, we don't have to think, oh, well, maybe I'm going into Janna, or maybe I can't go into Janna, so I'm not going to experience PT. I've heard some people say, oh, PT, no, I haven't anything. It's a wrong way to think about PT. Think about joy. And the way joy can be encouraged in the heart. And how we can, you know, just think about It's good for me to be joyful. It's good to be happy. Even when it's just a choice, smile. And it actually releases the chemicals that help us to feel happy. And so joy is one of the important steps to samadhi. And it's one of the important steps to awakening. This Vasadi is so this joy leads to tranquility. let go. And that's tranquility in the body and tranquility in the mind. And if you look at something like the Anapanasati Sutta, where you see these 16 instructions in how to meditate using in and out breathing, you'll see that there's a beauty, the joy there, Sukha, pleasant feeling. This is an unworldly pleasant feeling. This isn't a pleasant feeling from winning the lottery or whatever. This is a pleasant feeling that comes from spiritual uplift, from becoming more concentrated, from becoming more tranquil. And you'll see this um, in the, in the Anapanasati sutta. you'll see in the first tetra, which is about the body, the last instruction is to calm the bodily formations. This is tranquility of the body. And in the next series, about failing, the last instruction is to calm the activity of the mind. This is tranquility of the mind. So, this tranquility is conditioned by joy. And it conditions somebody, so the stability of mind, the lucid calm, the place within which wisdom can arise. And then the final factor is equanimity, which is another wisdom factor. Because with that equanimity, we see all the mess, we see all the chaos, and the mind is stable. So just just touching on that as a way of kind of bringing it back to this idea of I'm literally walking around with sati samadhi and panna. Three of the factors that are part of this seven factors of alignment. So, okay, that gives us the, the basis for seeing how important it is. Now, how do, we, how do we develop it? How do we develop this joy? The Buddha in the Suttas continually reminding us to reflect on our good qualities. I was just looking at us in the luncheon we out, where we talked about how a wise person is happy in three ways. That feels this kind of pleasant, joyful feeling. And one of them is because Keeps the precepts because you keep the precepts. And then, if anybody's talking about people, you know that they don't, they don't have any basis upon which to say anything negative about you. You're free of any kind of guilt yeah, because you keep the precepts. And we might think, oh, well, that's just the basics. Why should I feel, like? why should I, I think in our culture we're so worried that if I reflect on my own goodness, I'm going to be puffing myself up or something. But actually, this is what we need to do. We need to encourage the mind. You know, think about how you would train a child or train a dog. You know, just beat them when they're doing bad things. Right? Doesn't, doesn't come off to the good result. You encourage the good behavior and you praise it. Reflect on it. And so when we're, when, we're, when we check the mind and see, and I'm happy, we be, be honest. Not just try to like, you know, wedge happiness in there and act like it's all fine. Be honest. If I'm not happy, really tenderly look at what's going on. Is this because I have a habit of putting myself down and just focusing on what I do wrong and being negative about the world or listening too much to the negative voices of the world? Taking in the wrong sense input, Or what's wrong? Isn't quite the way I want to put it. Unwise. Wise or unwise attention. And then you know, like, if I'm not happy, why not? And sometimes that's enough. Don't we just have a habit of being kind of, oh. <laughs> oh want <we> to meditate, oh. <laughs> I sometimes I wish I had Arjun Brahm's sense of humor. I don't know how you feel about that, but. <laughs> So, encouraging the mind, reminding ourselves to be joyful, thinking about the things that make us feel good, feel joyful. The good, I mean, the unworldly good. That which doesn't rely on the conditions of things going where we want them to go. That's not ever going to really happen for any sustainable length of time. But we can be happy absolutely regardless but it takes practice and it takes the wisdom part why should I be happy On my mother's dying it's not a ha happiness but it's a deep peaceful clarity and practice, that understands arising and ceasing, and how there's nothing going the wrong. Yes. In
2: my my sitting today, I was investigating. Uh, thoughts arising Sukha versus dukkha versus Sukha nor dukkha and it turned out you know I'm trying to investigate okay okay where's this you know what? Where? where's the dukkha? and it was interesting that the, for the most part it was neither Sukha nor dukkha and it wasn't a lot of proliferation just kind of observing
0: mm-hmm.
2: And so if you're speaking I'm thinking, maybe neither Suka nor dukkha, just just being aware of that. So this, so after at lunchtime, uh, I'm sitting there and there'd been a little bit of dukkha in my mind, a little bit of aversion to the rose, and it went away, something was going on. And then I just sat there and I had this kind of joy arise. Mm-hmm. I was squeezed between two good friends. And it just arose spontaneously, but it wasn't it wasn't really sukha. It was anything I induced, and I wondered, you know, maybe that's going on more than I than I realized. It, it kind of came directly from the uh, sitting.
0: Mm-hmm. Nice. So this is another thing about wise attention, right? Paying attention to the joy, the times when joy arises and happiness arises, and yeah, it can be um, brought about by some conditioned, something conditioned, and that's okay. And then noticing that it brings more um, energy and, you know, what we pay, pay attention to gets bigger. So when Ajahn like every night, he was talking about how to be, you know, just saying you need to be happy and at ease all the time. You know, if you can't quite deal with happiness, maybe just think about being at ease. Am I at ease right now? Or am I worried about something? Or, you know, then we tend to the worry. That is buried under the rug. Or maybe the mind is just kind of conditioned and trained and habitually worried. In which case, it's like, oh, there's nothing to worry about. If everything's going wrong, then that's normal. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Still nothing to worry about. Um, Yeah.
1: as part of the path in terms of working with it more intentionally hmm. um, which I'm aware as, a a nun, as part of your
0: practice fortunately or not I had a pretty long can be an incredibly powerful practice ground and I think it starts by seeing your partner not as an object but as another living being trying to really see them as they are rather than some projection of what we want and ideally um partners would be in this practice together. But that's not always the case, is it? That most of the time it's not. So, if it is the case that two people decide um, together that that they are, you know, that they're both really interested in awakening and they're both really using their interactions and their friendship to support one another on the path, that's lovely. And if you haven't found that person yet, you could look for that. <laughs> Think about something beyond the physical attractions, certainly, and even beyond kind of um, cap- um, what I say? fitting together well, compatibility, even beyond that. Having a similar view about what's important in life, and since you're already, you know, spending your Saturday in a place like this, obviously, spiritual development is important in your life. So, sometimes together we can do a lot more than we can do separately, both as a positive force in the world and as uh, a team developing each individually but supporting each other. And then if, if depending on how long your relationship is you'll probably find that you both change. Or, as one person said to me once, you'll see husbands and wives split up and her complaint, his complaint is that she changed, and his, her complaint is that he hasn't. <laughs> I guess you could flip that gender-wise if you want to, but you get the idea, and you're not always in the same place. And then the practice becomes one of listening and caring and having patience. And autonomy, that is the kind of autonomy that makes it fine for each of you to work with what you've got where you're at. Just a few thoughts.
1: Yes? Yesterday we talked about, you talked about um, mindfulness in you know, various situations. And um,
0: I, I would love to hear more of your thoughts on how to do, you know, I can either be mindful of the bottom of my feet, I can be mindful of my breath, I can be mindful of... Uh, can you talk more about, is it possible to be mindful of all of it at the same mm-hmm, time? Mm-hmm, yes. you know, I mean, um, Yes. yes. It's really good when you're practicing, when you're mindful, that you know what you're mindful of. And, you know, one day someone showed up at a teaching and she said, Yeah, tell my son I'm going to really be mindful. I'm going to be so mindful while I'm driving. And then she went right through a red light. She's not quite paying attention to enough of <laughs> what was happening around her. Um, yes, there are times when it's appropriate to just be mindful of your feet touching the ground, and there are other times when it's, you know, wonderful to be mindful of your breath, and there are other times when you need to really have this all around your And I think my favorite description of how that works is, um, from, was from Ajahn Paniwato. He's a British monk who lived with Ajahn Mahabua for something like 40 years. And um, when I visited him at Ajahn Mahabua's monastery, one of the things he said was that you can have like this all-around, well, it's not really all-around awareness, it's awareness, you write awareness. And he said it's like uh, he, of course he was using a very old um, kind of simile because it's kind of where things were when he went to the monastery so many years ago but he talked about you know, like a telephone switchboard can you kind of bring that image back? <laughs> you know you've got all of these nodes out there right? All these telephones but instead of checking out there where the call is, you're at the switchboard and it comes in and you catch it right there at the switchboard. And so mindfulness being you're mindful, you're aware, you know you're aware in all the sense input is coming to your mindfulness. But you're not distracted thinking about something else. You know, if you... You know, you're aware that you're aware. You really are observing what's coming in. You do have an all-around kind of awareness. Does that make sense? Can you get a sense of how that feels? And that's the right thing when you're walking outside, where right? you gotta know if a car is coming the street. You gotta know. But if that's all you're paying attention to, what's coming in through the sense doors? Then hopefully you're not also, you know, thinking about the eight things you gotta do when you get home. Trying kind to of keep the mind present in the moment. Then you can get to think about the eight things when you get home. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh yeah. This, this, this Then you can be mindful and should be each one. It's simple, it's just not easy, <laughs> and it's okay to to forget. And I really like what Janjaya Saro says, he likes chunking, where he's like, You he focus, like, you say, I'm going to be mindful for this period of time, like, really make an effort during this period of time. So it's not formal practices, it's informal, whatever you're doing, you know, and see how that goes instead of like, oh, okay, I'm going to be mindful all day long and then. You know, it gets to be four o'clock, and you realize that you haven't been mindful for about the last six hours. You know, just try to, we need to try to give ourselves manageable tasks and do them, and then reflect on them and be happy with it. And if we're not quite happy with it, encourage ourselves for the part we did well and, and, or even attempted, and then, you know, just do a little more. Yeah.
3: About the speech precept, Um, so
2: there are situations when if you talk to people who do not understand
3: gentle speech or cannot, it just like they don't get it, right? So in order for you to get your point across, you're sort of forced to use. A little bit harsher speech, or a little bit like louder, you know, than you would like, because otherwise, um, you don't, you can't give your point across. So, how would you handle this, and not <laughs> breaking the prison
0: I would first try. About this. So, at first, before I would try to be more forceful and maybe a little more rough, try listening more to them, more engaged. See if you can engage them with your caring, with your compassion, with your understanding. So, it's not the energy of the forcefulness of the speech, but it's the energy of the heart coming forward more. If that seems too risky, then place your mind in a, in a state of love and kindness before you speak, so that your mind is pure, But it's not through anger or aversion that you say this with a louder, sharper tone.
1: Yeah. I
3: try to understand um, why, you know, usually I kind of... uh, reflection, what I have done, I feel like I respond very fast, but most times happen after the things happen, and then, oh, why was not being mindful at that time, you know? I, I just kind of always reflect, okay, this reflection, oh, no, the, at that moment, I, sometimes I feel kind of frustrated about it.
0: I know it's so quick. I'm not so close, Should be patient. Well, I try to figure out why I like that. Well, everybody loses mindfulness. And everybody, you know, I mean we can always find a way that we should have done something better. Am I understanding that
3: right? um, yeah, I mean, I try to figure out why the, you know, you, Practice mindfulness, the manual, like, whatever, sitting, walking, or just sit there yourself being mindful. But sometimes the same happens, for example, somebody come talk to you very, very quickly, you know, and the tongue or the, the other people talk very quickly. You know, in of I try to understand what exactly the person wants or need, I just quickly respond to just doesn't have a really kind of a gap for me to being yeah. mindful about what is the situation for this person, why I
0: respond so fast?
2: Something.
0: Well, basically I think it's habit. That's, That's our habit. And it takes, I mean, I think the reflection helps to say, okay, without being harsh, how would I like to do that? And really walk yourself through the imagining of the way you would like to respond. And maybe even practice a little, you take a deep breath first, and then say something. And it's like training yourself to do it in a new way. And then it takes time for the new habit to take over. Like you'll still so probably do it the same old way a lot of times, but you keep reminding yourself and then practicing through it. I find this is very useful. I think of it as like um, something I saw um, happen in a uh, steeplechase race. You know what steeplechase is? It's cross country races horseback where they go over jumps and water and right, all kinds of stuff, and it's, it's a timed thing. There's a course. And whenever a horse walks at the jump and won't go over it, well, the, the rider's already lost because they are not going to be able to beat the time the horse is going to do it all perfectly, Right? But instead of just, like, walking off the field, takes the horse around, and they do the jump. And then they finish the whole course. So I do that with my mind. So if if I don't like the way I handled something, then let's go back and do it the right way. It's just an internal process, but go back and do it the way I would like to do it. Right and wrong is a little funny, because there's not really a right and wrong, probably, but let's just do it the more skillful way. And then I find that over time, that's the behavior that comes out. So that's a possibility. There will be And the more we practice mindfulness, too. And if we have that that samadhi factor in there, it will bring some kind of insulation. And we might have a little more time, a little more of a wedge between what happens and how we react. Yes?
2: It seems to me like uh, in many instances what comes up when people are
3: asking questions is uh, um, what comes up in my mind is, is patience
2: and that we, we believe we're patient with ourselves and with others but in, in this culture I find that it's, it's often lost. Mm-hmm. It gets lost very easily and so I guess it's just it's, it's just a uh,
0: Continuous reminder that employing it is of great value. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. And we're going to have to be patient with our lack of patience. You know, it's like this is why um, being mindfulness and wisdom together, so that we can actually see, oh, I'm, I'm not being patient. And if you have good friends living with you, they'll say, Are you ancient? (laughs) (laughs) No. not (laughs) ancient. Oops, maybe better didn't look (laughs) at (laughs) that. And sometimes, you know, somebody else, they know you really well, (laughs) they Um, we have to be careful to not think, "Oh, I've been practicing for so many years, and I'm beyond that." And be with like how it actually is. Yes. I've been thinking about the five standards a fair bit—the heaps of aggregates—and mm-hmm. I
1: recently heard that it's not a hierarchical model like building from form feelings up to
0: consciousness, but something else can you kind of describe their relationship to each other? I think the Buddha really did um they them the seats. You know, just kind of sorting the stuff that we identify with and cling to them. and form just isn't isn't just the body, it's a Whenever we're clinging to, desiring, wanting to get rid of, um, that's physical form. And then the other four, well, feeling, feeling's a bit separate still too, even though it's closely tied into the other mental aggregates. But they're the mental ones, right? And he said, you can't really clean and separate them. I've never thought of it as hierarchical. Ever. Fizzardous. Thrown into these buckets. In order to break down our delusion that this is some kind of neat thing, package, cohesive entity. So, yeah, it's hard to separate perception, volitional mental activity, and consciousness. And for all practical purposes, that only matters. What matters is that we realize what we're clinging to, what we're identifying with, And we recognize how toxic that is. Over and over in the sutras, you see the the Buddha encouraging us to understand the gratification, the danger, and the escape of clinging to the kandas, of a host of other things. And it's like, what what are we getting out of? You know, our attachment to our minds and our bodies. The ego wants to survive. The body wants to survive. Certain things happen, and even if you know this whole thing is not a self and it's falling apart, the body will still practically panic. It's pain, mindfulness, and Wisdom are there. You can just see it happen. There's Brahma the is there, you can respond to that with kindness and compassion. It's okay. There was a woman who was a long-term practitioner who had um, certain ideas of how developed she was on the path, and then when she was dying, she was having trouble breathing, and she panicked. And even the people around her were so disappointed. It's like, what? The body is gonna like react to not being able to breathe. Doesn't mean she's not advanced. Or doesn't know the truth about that. That's just the body reacting. So the the main thing with the kandas is like so many other things when there's Luca prison then you play my friends over here her favorite game where's the plane? (laughs) (laughs) it's like where's Waldo? (laughs) where's the plane? there's plane somewhere and that's what the Buddha was talking about these are the five aggregates of clinging. We're not clinging to it. We don't, really, we don't really care what deep it's in, even if we are clinging to it. <laughs> Look at the clinging. <laughs> and if we try to get too intellectual about it, especially around someone like Ajit Ganhai, ask any kind of question like, You said the mind, the chitta never dies. What? So, after asking that question, you are still confused. <laughs> <laughs> or, or just, just stop it. So what? Who cares? It's not gonna get me enlightened. So you get caught in stuff. Other things that say like, you know, like. I really don't, you know, if you if you feel like I really don't understand what they're talking about, I'm going to talk about it the bottom. It's good to look at the sutras and know what the Buddha said. I really encourage reading the sutras so that you know what the Buddha said and what people are saying that he said that he didn't say. So that's important. But getting trying to understand with an analytical mind something that only can be understood by direct experience is pretty fruitless. So contemplating the teachings is important but doing it as contemplation and, and usually at, not as analysis. There's an early stage of grappling with it on an analytical level that's helpful. But you don't keep doing that ad nauseum then shift into a mode of contemplation which is you hold the question in your mind and then you let it go. And you practice an open heart. And then there will come a time when it hits you. This question may be too broad, but in Buddhism
1: we learn to calm our mind, meditate, follow the precepts, restraint, and soon we can calm our mind to the point where we might experience release or something before that. In Tibetan Buddhism, I believe they say the primordial mind is liberation itself or something like that. It's already liberated, you just have to realize it. I don't know if I'm saying that right. That's In, I, okay. In Taoism, I believe they say that if you're one with nature or something like that, <laughs> that is the pinnacle. I'm wondering do all these Buddhists, the three Buddhists, uh, from the three Buddhist countries, Do they all arrive at the same place of liberation or nirvana? Excuse if this is just too broad.
0: No, that's okay. So, first of all, Taoism is not a form of Buddhism. You know, Veda Mahayana. And they're all really based on the early teachings, one way or another. You know, and so, as the Dalai Lama encourages people to go back and read the Theravada Suttas, about, especially <coughs> about Satipatthana, uh, Anapanasati, so it's Mahan. You know, it's like these are the teachings of the Buddha. Whenever I've uh, listened to the Dalai Lama, I've heard the same exact things. And here at a Theravada talk. Um, the Buddha taught liberation. And that does run through all the all the Buddhist forms I think. If it if it doesn't, I don't think it's not, I don't want any longer Buddhism. One of the things I loved hearing Ajankanasi was if you make divisions between religions, of course he's talking between Christianity and Buddhism and Islam and all the different ones if you make divisions it's wrong you gotta love everybody and we have a respect for people developing good moral virtue and developing Um, selflessness feeling and whatever else you know, these these good qualities that are encouraged and um, if there's you know, philosophical disagreement between the the sex of Buddhism it kind of gets into that area of who cares because they do think it ends up in the same place. We talked a little bit yesterday about the bodhisattva path and the arahant path, and I think it's a place it dichotomy. You know, you just try getting awakened and still being selfish. It's a matter of different definitions, but the Buddha was focused on liberation. And you're not, not going to become an arahant and then not help other people. Even if all you did was sit in a cave and meditate, the, the power of your mind would help millions of people. So it's just—it's just not two different things. That's fascinating. Awesome. And we could be a lot more friendly. <laughs> And a lot less judgmental. Mm-hmm. The places to use are I don't say judgment, but discernment is around wholesome and unwholesome action. Mm-hmm. And that's about it. Mm-hmm. So, is it time to meditate some more? Should I read another poem first? So, I think Patty is going to put a paper on the back table in case you wonder where this book came from, you can take a look at it. It's on it's, um, the first three women by Maddie Weingast, and he took the Terikata, and he started to make translations of these poems that were more like a rendering. It's not like a literal translation. So I I like looking at the literal translations, too, that have come from a few different people. But uh, this is so inspired and direct. And um, I would invite you to pick up a copy and enjoy it. Told the first three women, poems of the early Buddhist Months. This one's anonymous. I was young when I left home, and for years I rambled around. My practice, sitting, walking, and hoping. At first, everything was new. I didn't notice my skin drying up or my hair turning gray. Then one morning, there I was, an old woman. Where had I gotten in all those years on the path? That night I slept out in a field, and it rained. I felt like I belonged there, miserable and alone in the mud. In the morning, I went to the nearest monastery and threw myself down. A nun took me in and taught me this body, this mind, this world, where they come from, where they go, what they are, what they are not. That night, I went out to sit in the field and it rained. I felt like I belonged here. Every drop of water telling me I was home. Don't worry, my sisters. When the road reaches its end, you'll know it. So I want to encourage you to dig deeper. Actually, I actually think there's maybe another poem or two on to Okay. Mm-hmm. One of the things to reflect on is how we really need to let go of everything. And these two poems, and if you were at. Uh, Thursday night's gathering, you'll have already heard them, but maybe that's okay. These two poems kind of give the range of what we need to let go of. This first one is called Suba, the Goldsmith's Daughter. Oh, that's not the one I want to do. Sorry. Sumeda of Great Wisdom. So the story about Sameda is that she was uh, the daughter of a king, and her mother was his first queen. And she was, um, her marriage was being arranged with another king, young, dashing, handsome king. And this is what she wrote. I was wearing a new white dress on the morning I first heard the Dharma. Something was calling, but I couldn't quite make it out. I started spending more and more time alone in my room. One morning over breakfast, my mother asked me what was going on, so I told her. The Buddha's path isn't easy to follow, my mother said, especially for someone accustomed to getting whatever she wants. Marry the good king Anakadata. Enjoy all the things young ladies enjoy dressing up, being waited on, and going to expensive parties like weddings. Today you want to dress this body up and sell it at a wedding, I told her, but soon enough they'll be selling it to a graveyard for nothing. We are cows chasing the axe. We are soft flesh chasing the cobra's fangs. We are dry straw chasing the torch. We are lovers chasing our own reflections. Mother, we are walking food. The virtue, vulture circle, we lie young, the feast begins. My parents watched as they took a long sharp knife and cut off my long black hair. Just then came out walked in. He looked at me, blade in one hand and a couple of feet of hair in the other. Then he smiled. With your hair cut short, Sameda, you look even more beautiful. Soon all the women in our kingdom will be cutting their hair just like yours. Come, my love, the whole world is chasing happiness. You and I will be among the lucky few who win the race. Good king, I said. If we spend our lives running after the things of the world, we will die and keep right on running. Stealing the things we need to earn, setting fire to the things we need to protect, drowning the people we need to love, and turning into enemies, those most like ourselves. I threw my hair to the ground. I'm to melt down, picked up a few strands, and let them fall. Then he stood and turned to my parents. You who would have been my mother, you who would have been my father, fled so many ago. May she find the path, and may she one day return to show us all the way home. It's getting dark now, my sisters. The sun's going down, and soon we'll all be going our separate ways. Can we sit together just a little while longer, not saying anything at all? The path will go on, rising and falling like a song. And in the end you will find yourself, as one lost at sea finds herself finally washed ashore. Listen, can you hear that? The sound of the wind and the leaves like a wave coming on. Come on. Shake up the world. Set yourself free. So that's one end of what we of like to love. Everything you're supposed to want. Even that really nice, dashing king who says, let her go. Let her fuck her. That's a good guy. then there's the other side. This is Upalavana. Upalavana was one of the two foremost devotees. You know how the Buddha had his two main uh, disciple monks, Venerable Sariputta and Venerable Mahamukalana, and how... Sariputta was foremost in wisdom, and Mogolana was foremost in second powers. Well, he had two foremost bhikkhunis. Kino was foremost in wisdom, and uh, Upolwana was foremost in second powers. So this is Upolwana's story. And she starts out in the literal translation saying, I was made to be a co-wife with my mother to my father. And here, Maddie starts it out. I hated my father. And I hated my mother for making it my father. I left home to get away from him and then found him everywhere I went. But I trained hard. I learned to make my hands glow red with fire. And I handled the darkness with a chain. I swore... No one would ever hurt me again. Then one night, while meditating in the woods, I was grabbed from behind. This sow tree is in full bloom, the man said. And here, lying beneath it, I find a sawflower with a lovely shaved head. Tell me, my little flower, aren't you afraid? I turned around. He looked just like my father. It would have taken so little, a flick of a finger, to make him burn. I looked into his eyes and I saw the billion lifetimes that he and I had been running around the same circle together. Then I walked all the way down to the darkest parts of my own mind and stood in front of the blazing roar of countless lifetimes of fear and revenge threw themselves into the furnace. Burn with me, my sisters. And when you're ready, come up from that dark place where you've gone to be alone forever. The path leads directly through these vast worlds of fear and hate. We've all wounded and been wounded. We've all been made to feel weak. Yes. There is great strength in the darkness. Yes. Yes. The mind can be used as a knife or a chain. Yes, your whole world is burning itself to the ground. Ask the lizard how long this has been going on. Ask the sunflower and her million seeds. The mind is more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Ask yourself, what we are really prepared to give up in order to be free. So we have to give up the sexual pleasures, and we have to give up the hatred, we have to give up the way we see ourselves, the stories we have, the ideas about who we are, let go of the clinging to all those clunders. Kind of then we can do it.